0: turn with me if you will to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 and i want to read 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 14 through 16 it's a a passage that's mentioned in chapter 17 of knowing the living god and I want to read it, and then we'll reference it again later. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we're obviously returning again to the theme of the holiness of God. John Gill in speaking of God's holiness, says this, quote: It has been thought to be not so much a particular and distinct attribute of itself as the luster, glory, and harmony of all the rest. In other words, he's saying we might consider the holiness of God not as just one particular thing, but really... The, the glory, the, the shining forth or effulgence of all of God's attributes. And he suggests that the, the holiness of God is the very beauty of God. It is what makes God beautiful and attractive. Matthew Henry says, quote, Let us always give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. So let's do that. Before we begin, let's give Thanks, and with our thanksgiving, let's uh, make our request for God's help uh, known to Him. Father, we, we do come to You with thanksgiving. We are so thankful, so grateful that You are holy. Lord, at every place where You are shown to be completely other than every created thing, we, we find another beauty, another treasure we're thankful that we have you as our God and, and not any other. And now, Lord, as we consider your holiness and what it implies for our lives, would you help us? Would you instruct us? Would you teach us? We don't need to hear from merely from a human teacher, but we need you to speak through the human teacher and through your word and... We need you to write truth upon our hearts and we need you to change us in our, in our very souls. We need you to reroute our affections. We need you to uh, rearrange us utterly and completely from what we are by nature and continue to reconstitute us as, as worshipers who adore you for your holiness. So, please help us, Father. In, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, I'll begin by reading a little bit from last week just to recap. We, we learned that the word holiness or holy comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means separated or marked off, placed apart, withdrawn from common use. The root of this word means to cut. And so to say that something is holy is to say that it has been cut off or is separated apart from something else. When we speak of God being holy, what we're saying is He is utterly other than everything else, unlike anything else distinct from any other thing. With regard to the holiness of God, we very often group that this attribute into two categories. There's first that holiness, which is... Uh, in Him and His transcendence as God beyond all created things. And then there's the application of that in the realm of morality or God's moral holiness. He is completely separated from every created thing and therefore He is also separated from the corruption that now attends every created thing. And at one point I made this statement, not really thinking about tonight, but I made this statement. We must conclude that the holiness of God is not something that we simply agree with or affirm, but something of God which alters us in ourselves. It changes the way we think about God, ourselves, our relation to God, and His relation to us. The point being, when we get a grasp of the holiness of God it changes us. You don't come to terms with this attribute. Even in the least, even if we, if we got a fraction like we just read, even if we just got a glimpse of the outskirts or the, the shadow of the passing by of God's holiness, if we see a piece of it, a speck, it changes us. We're, we're, we can't be the same. Now with that being said, we now make our move to that very... Reality, the change in us, or more specifically, the title of the the chapter is Our Response to the Holiness of God. So I'll read there in the introduction God is holy, holy, holy. Although we have sinned against Him and made ourselves an abomination before Him, He has reconciled us who believe to Himself through the death of His own Son. We were and are, by nature, the abomination. That's who we are. Having saved us, He has called us to be His special people upon the earth. How shall we live in response to this great truth? How shall we live before a holy God? That's the question. We could almost put it in in terms of a, a rhetorical question that assumes an answer... How, how can we live? How is it possible? When we see in Scripture, we read from Isaiah, he says, I'm undone. I'm ruined. He's saying, he's saying effectively, how, how can I go on living? I'm destroyed. I'm obliterated. And this is the way we ought to think. And if we, if we haven't gotten to that point, we're not understanding the holiness of God. If you've not gotten to that point where you've said, if this is who God is... How can I show my face? How can I go anywhere? How can I live any longer? Of course, as we just read, we've been reconciled to Him by the death of His Son, and so we can and do live before Him. But how? In what manner should we live? And it's broken up the answer here into two main headings. First of all, there's the importance of holiness and then our particular response. So First, the importance of holiness. He says it would be difficult to overemphasize the need for us to understand the importance of the holiness of God and its implications for our lives. God is holy and we are called to be holy as he is holy as we just read in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 14 through 16. And notice that in 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 verse 14 how Peter grounds his argument as obedient Children. He grounds the way that we ought to live in our relationship to God. The God that is holy is our God, but He's also now our Father, and that should lead us to be holy because we are His children. Holiness, we could say, is the family resemblance, holiness is that beauty. In God, which then is passed down to His children, which uh, gives us that striking resemblance. In some sense, it is the beauty of the people of God. Of course, we're not, we're not talking externally. Very often, there's nothing attractive about most of us. Men can say amen. There's nothing attractive about most of us externally. But the people of God, when we begin to put on this, this image of the holiness of God, this is what makes the people of God attractive. And the men could also say as of our wives that it is that holy character in our wives that we would say it far surpasses any physical thing. So you get to see a little glimpse of that even in your own households. And wives can probably say that about your husbands. It's because we're His children. The first text that we're going to look at is Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. So you can turn there. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And again, with the the time, I'm going to try to flip to these quick. Don't think I'm being disrespectful if I start reading while you're still turning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The question is how... According to Proverbs 19, how important is it that we acknowledge and understand the holiness of God? How important is it that we grow in our own personal holiness? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We learn here that a right understanding of the holiness of God is the very foundation of all true knowledge. Now, we'll very often say things like, well, you know, you don't need the Bible to learn two plus two is four. You don't need the Bible to learn how to, to change the oil in your car. The Bible was, was not given to give instruction in those matters. But I still think that we can say that apart from the holiness of God, two plus two equals four doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Who cares what two plus two is? If, if it's not for God. If there were no God, that would be irrelevant. The, the knowledge of the holiness of God gives life and meaning and motivation to every other reality. Even though the Scriptures might not uh, teach us how to change the oil in our car, the fact that we serve a holy God means that changing the oil in my car now has some sort of purpose and meaning. Apart from God, it's all irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It is the very foundation of all knowledge. We we, we began at the beginning of this study talking about what it means to know God and to seek Him. To know God is to know Him as holy. It's not to know Him in any other way except for who He is and He is holy. We also see in this verse that the fear of the Lord, which is our response, or we could say the response uh, created in us, to God's holiness the fear of the lord leads to practical wisdom or is the bedrock of practical wisdom the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy one is understanding we we could say anything unholy is foolish or nothing unholy is wise when you're trying to make decisions if it's an unholy Option, that's not the way to go. Holiness and wisdom, they go together. And knowing the holiness of God and fearing God because of His holiness, that informs everything in our lives. It teaches us how to live. Wisdom and understanding in in the mind lead to practical wisdom. And practical wisdom lived out, making wise decisions, that is holy living. That's what it is. Since fear of the Lord and knowledge of the Holy One leads to practical wisdom, then we could conclude that it is this knowledge of God's holiness which is at the root of all practical holiness. If, you're, if you at any point take a step in life that we that someone that God would would say is that was a, a holy decision, that decision came from or flowed from the fact that you knew something of the holiness of God or or to put it the other way, coming to terms with the holiness of God is what propels us to live holy lives. Here, The note says, We learn here that the greatest truth set before men is that God is holy and worthy of all reverence and worship, all other knowledge and wisdom... Scientific, philosophical, historical, legal is worthless apart from a correct understanding of this truth. If God is not holy, none of these other things matter. But because God is holy, then these other things now have a—they a, a, they receive a life. I mentioned not too long ago these these big debates about philosophy, and and men have historically said that philosophy is the handmaid of of theology. Philosophy sort of has come in to help us articulate things. In other words. Philosophy by itself is irrelevant. Who cares? But because there is a God, because there is theology, well, then I'm gonna, I can grab from these other things and say, well, this, is, this makes sense. This is helpful now because of who God is. But not, not the other way around. We don't start with these other things. Science is the same way. Um, how, does, how does grass turn green? If God's not holy, who cares what color the grass is? It doesn't matter. Photosynthesis is irrelevant if God is not holy. But because I know that God is holy, all of a sudden, that fact makes photosynthesis blow our minds. That's that's the point. Knowing this God gives life to everything else. And to know God is to know Him as holy. Nobody else come up with photosynthesis. Nobody else can figure that out. Only one. He is in a category all his own. He's holy. The next passage is Hebrews twelve, fourteen, and we'll be in two passages in Hebrews. Hebrews twelve, fourteen. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, or if you have the ESV, you know it says, the whole, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And the note explains that word sanctification or, or holiness comes from the Greek word hagiasmos, which can also be translated holiness or consecration. And then there's this a qualification, and this is an important qualification. According to the Scriptures... The absolute holiness needed to see the Lord or be in His presence cannot be achieved through human merit, but only through faith in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. For this reason, the author of Hebrews also writes, For by one offering He, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, Hebrews 10.14. However, so that's the qualification. We need to keep that... Clear in our minds, what the author here is not saying is that you need to earn your way into heaven by being holy. However, in Hebrews 12, 14, the truth being communicated is that all those who truly have been perfected or sanctified by the blood of Christ will also seek to be holy in their personal lives. We are not right with God because of our pursuit of holiness. Rather, salvation by grace through faith will lead to our pursuit of holiness. And so this is we talked about this when we talked about gospel obedience. The pursuit of holiness is essential for any person who desires to see the Lord. It's essential. And at the same time, it is not our pursuit of holiness that earns our right to see God. How do these two go together? Because holiness and the pursuit of holiness is the inevitable fruit of salvation. What what would we say is the apex of our salvation except adoption, our being adopted as sons by God the Father. And so again, just like we saw in 1 Peter, sonship and holiness go hand in hand. That God is holy leads to our holiness because He's our Father. We are His children. The fact that the holy God saved us, the holy God adopted us as His sons, means that we will now be holy children. We will seek and pursue that. And if there's not that pursuit, there's no reason to believe you're going to heaven. The third passage is just before that, verses 5 through 11 of Hebrews 12. The question is, what does God do to ensure that all His children share in His holiness? Reading Hebrews 12, 5-11, You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We learn here that God is so concerned with our personal holiness that He takes upon Himself this obligation of fatherly discipline. He does it for a purpose, and that is to make us holy. God's desire is our holiness. God wants us to be holy as He is holy. Therefore, we should say, if that's what God desires for me, then that is supremely significant. That's what God desires. That ought to be my utmost desire. In the notes he says there are several important truths that we have to recognize about God's discipline of His children. One, God's discipline is an expression of His love and is always for the believer's good. Two, God's discipline is not retributive. Uh, Its purpose is to protect us, mature us, and mold us into the image of Christ. God's discipline can occur in a believer's life as a result of sin. In such cases, the purpose is to correct him, to prove to him the dangers of sin, and to teach him reverence for God. That's important. Some people believe that because Christ has has ransomed us and has washed us by His blood, that therefore when we sin, there, there are just no repercussions. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true for your children. As a matter of fact, our children are born to us and the longer they're with us, it seems like the repercussions for their sins become more and more because there's more obligation laid upon them as they increase in wisdom and knowledge and understand the rules of the family. Number four, God's discipline can occur in the life of even the most mature and pious believer. In such cases, it's simply to take him to greater heights of conformity to Christ. Number five, God's discipline can be terribly painful. But afterwards, it yields the fruit of greater righteousness and holiness. Number six, God's discipline in our lives is evidence that we are His children. Lack of discipline is evidence that we are not. If you can live however you please, even if that's not in rank, open, uncivilized, barbaric rebellion, but you just sort of carry on your life, making your decisions however you please, going along with the drift of the world, and there's there's no discipline from the Lord at all, that's evidence you're not a Christian. You don't belong to Him. That's a fearful thing. God's great goal for our present lives is not material prosperity, comfort, or even health, but that we may share in His holiness. But what what do we do? Well, I think our, our typical activity or, or, or response is the very thing that the author, to he, the Hebrews, tells us not to do. We often regard it lightly. He says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Well, we, we, that's because we do. Very often regard it lightly. We esteem the discipline of God lightly. We treat it like it's a little thing. We might recognize it for what it is. We, we do something. The discipline of the Lord comes in. And we, we know, okay, that's, the, the Lord is disciplining me. But, but then we'll, we'll brush it off very quickly like a, a spoiled child. Okay, I get it, I get it. We just move along very quickly. Or very often the discipline of the Lord comes and we have already determined ahead of time that that discipline is not for, fill in the blank, that one thing. That, that thing in your life that you've already justified in your own heart, you've already decided this is off-limits to God, I'm going to do this regardless of, of, of what I know is uh, biblical, what I know is prescribed, what I know is most wise, and I'm going to justify it this way, and therefore whatever comes into my life as a, as a, a, a response or a reaction to that or a consequence to that, well, that might be God's discipline, but it, it's not discipline for this. We we've, we we write that out of our minds, and, and we say, "Oh Lord, what are you trying to teach me?" I, I know you're trying to teach me something. What are you trying to teach me? Well, it's it's this over here. Oh, I know it's not that. I know it's not that. But what are you trying to teach me? Oh Lord, I know you're just trying to teach me something. And he's saying it's it's over here. No, I know it's not that. I've already justified that in my own mind. I know it, it can't be that. What are you trying to teach me? We we regard it lightly, like it's a small thing. We we reduce what God wants to do in us and to us in our hearts. Rather, we ought to esteem the discipline of the Lord highly, highly. Why? Well, it's from the Lord. We ought to revere any and all of God's actions with high regard. It's from our God and our Father, the one who has our best interest in mind. We ought to regard it highly, it flows from a very rich fountain. The adopting love of God. He's treating us as sons. That, that should raise that discipline up in our minds. He wants, me to be a, he wants me to be like Him. He's treating me as a son. And it issues forth into blessed ends or, or goal. Holiness. godlikeness. But We often regard it lightly. And that's why He says don't do that. We also very often we grow weary or faint under the discipline of the Lord. We want to give out. The, the language there is the picture is like the relaxing of a bowstring. string. It's really tight and then all of a sudden, somehow it comes loose and it just goes limp. God brings discipline in our lives and we, we just go limp, like we can't bear up under it or endure it. Do not grow weary, he says. The opposite of that would be to bear up and endure God's discipline for our good. Receive it. In verse 10, there's he he's, He talks about that short time our earthly parents our earthly fathers they disciplined us for a short time and it was good for us. Some of you children, you don't yet understand. I try to explain this to my children and when you're young you don't understand you say I, you're saying, oh no I get it no you don't you don't understand yet. when you get older, you will understand all of that discipline when you more than likely when you're going to when you get older you're going to say Man, I needed a lot more discipline that I didn't get. They discipline us for a short time. We look back and we say, that was, it was so good, so needful. Well, how much better is it to be under God's discipline? They discipline us for a short time as seemed good to them. Well, there, there is no as seemed good to God. It is, it is just good. It's perfect. In verse 11, there's a comparison between discipline for the moment and then what it brings forth afterwards. We compare that for the moment, and then later, what's to come. And if we think that way, we would say, well, then we ought to bear up and endure God's fatherly discipline. Don't judge it by the present moment, but according to later, according to what is coming, which is holiness. My children tell me all the time, I don't want to whoop I don't want to whoop and I don't want to whoop I know that. That's why it works. You don't, if you wanted it, it wouldn't, wouldn't serve its purpose. Don't judge it by the moment. In the moment, of course you don't want it. If God came and said, Would you like some fatherly discipline? Here's what I'm going to do. You'd say, No, no way. I can't, I can't make it through that. The author here says, Don't grow weary. Receive it, bear up under it, looking beyond it because God is making us holy. Holy. There's a a hymn that I've heard several times recently, and it goes like this. And this, I think, should be a a cry of our hearts Oh, to be like thee! Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. Come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness. Stamp thine own image deep on my heart. That should be our, our desire. I want to be holy, I want to be like God. Lord, whatever it takes, make me holy. That's the importance of holiness. So number two, our response to the holiness of God. I'm going to skip some of the reading just for the sake of time. But the first response is is reverence and godly fear found in Psalm 96, verse 9. So turn there. Psalm 96, verse 9 reverence, and godly fear. Psalm 96, 9, Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. And there's a comment about the language. The word attire comes from the Hebrew word hadara, which may also be translated beauty or splendor. The same Hebrew phrase is translated as holy attire, is called Holy Array in Psalm 110.3 and others. There is a debate as to whether the psalmist is referring to the holiness of God or the holiness of the one who is worshiping. If it is the former, then it is a call for us to worship God because of the beauty of His holiness. If it is the latter, it is a call for us to come before God with a pure heart and a holy life. This is true beauty in the eyes of God. The call to tremble is not because God is capricious or untrustworthy, but because of the infinite greatness of His holiness and power. In other words, the best and most honorable way to come before God in worship is to do so seeking to mimic or mirror His own holiness. Come in the holy uh, holy attire or the splendor of holiness, the beauty of holiness. God is saying, holiness to me is beautiful. That's what God says. What does that do? When we aspire after holiness, that says that we see holiness as beautiful and worthy of our aspiration. And if we see beautine- or be- uh, holiness as beautiful and worthy of our aspiration, what we're really showing is that we really do believe that God Himself is beautiful. That He's worthy of our adoration and our imitation so many people will say things like, I love God or, or God is number one or something. And, and, and you you look at their lives and you, can, you say, You don't like God. You don't care anything about God. Nothing about you gives me the impression that you find God attractive because you're not trying to be like Him. But one who sees God as holy and sees that holiness as beautiful... Well, that draws us in and we say, I want to be like that. I'm aspiring after it. So That's the picture there. The next text is Isaiah 6, 2 and 3. Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 3. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." The Scriptures do not reveal a great deal about the angelic creatures called seraphim. However, because of their proximity to God's throne, it is logical to suppose that they are probably the greatest of all creatures in holiness and power. Nevertheless, in the presence of God, they can only bow their heads and worship. There are many... Been many opinions put forth regarding the symbolism of their wings. It is possible that they cover their faces in reverence, or because the glory of God is too much even for them to bear, they cover their feet in humility, recognizing that they are mere creatures, and the Lord alone is God. What we see in this scene, and we would do well to just read Isaiah 6, one to one to five, or one to six or seven, just read it every day. Heavenly worship has one theme, and it is the holiness of God. These seraphim, now for thousands of years, have been there in the presence of God. They're they're worshiping, volleying back and forth to one another about His holiness and His glory. They can't get past it. They can't move on. They don't say, you know, Let's, what else do you want to sing about now? No, they, don't, they, they can't move on. They don't get bored with it. God's holiness never gets old to them. It has never settled into them. It's like these seraphim. As he said, the, it, it makes sense that they would be the greatest of all creatures in holiness and power. And yet after all these thousands of years in God's presence, they have not come to terms with this holiness. They, they have not gotten to that point where they said, okay, we get it, you're holy, now let's can, can we move on? No. They've never come to terms with it. Just constant praise with regard to His holiness. And then flip over a page to Isaiah 8, verse 13, page or two. Three duties are given regarding the believer's relationship to the Lord. And then we're going to read through it and identify these duties. Isaiah 8:13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. So what do we learn? First, we should regard God as holy. Regard him as holy, not merely affirm not merely agree, but to regard is to count Him as holy in our own hearts. As he says, the phrase regard as holy comes from the single Hebrew word kadash, which literally means to separate or consecrate. We are to set God apart in our hearts as separate or distinct from all other persons or things. He is to have the first place in our lives with no competing desires or loyalty. When I see people say things like God and country or God and guns, it makes my skin crawl. There is no and. There's no, nothing else on the shelf with Him. He's holy. You name God and then if you want to talk about something else, then come over here. But they don't go together. Amen. Regard Him as holy. Don't put Him with other things. Secondly, He shall be our Fear. The word fear comes from the Hebrew word mora, which denotes fear, terror, reverence, or awe. Fear and terror are often associated with unrighteousness or wickedness. Evil and evil men instill terror in us. However, when the word is used of God, it is a fear that results from His infinite majesty, beauty, holiness, righteousness, and power. He shall be our fear. There is a part of this that is reverence. And all, but there is also a part of the fear of uh, of of our the response in us to who God is that should be at least a hint of terror, of trembling. Not not necessarily in light of judgment or because of of any kind of punitive uh, thing that might happen to us, but because of what it says: infinite majesty, beauty, holiness, righteousness, power. You see the the men in Scripture that fall down in the presence of God, or they say, I'm undone. Um, Was it uh, Ezekiel? Just repeatedly, he just kept falling down. Every time God showed up, he just fell over. John, it, uh, it wasn't because God was coming at him with a sword or in judgment. He just showed up, and people were terrified. He shall be our fear, and then he shall be our dread. The word comes from the Hebrew word aratz, which means to cause terror, shock, dread, or awe. This is important. From the context, verse 12, we learn that God is admonishing His people not to fear men and thus compromise their faith. Rather, they are to fear Him and follow Him with all their hearts. Then He will be a sanctuary for His people and protect them from their enemies. We should so set apart God in our hearts as holy as our only fear and our only dread that nothing else even approaches that shelf in our hearts. There, there, there should be a shelf in our hearts that is, that is regard as holy, be afraid, be in dread. On that shelf, what goes there? God. Fill that up with God. Okay. Now, there, there, there's no room left to fear or dread anything else. Then He will be a sanctuary for His people when we fear Him. The reason that we are afraid of anything in the world is because we do not fear God enough. There there should be so much fear and dread of God in us that anything else that comes along, you just say, listen, I don't have room for any more fear in me. I already am full of... My my fear capsule is full. I can't go any further in fear. And at that point, we trust that the Lord will be a sanctuary for us in any and every situation. Now two texts, Habakkuk 2.20 and Ecclesiastes 5.2. We'll begin with... Habakkuk. If you're still learning your books of the Bible, just remember Habakkuk is right before Zephaniah. Yeah. <laughs> Habakkuk 2.20. Two important texts that communicate to us something of the reverence required when approaching God. For Prayer or worship back at 220, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now we live in a noisy society it, I, we could probably I would guess in this room there's probably approaching a thousand dollars worth of Bluetooth headphones amongst us. You know, we, we want to put something in our ears either to to keep sound pumping in or to cloud out other things, but for whatever reason. But we live in a society where there's just always some sound. And I'm not condemning that. I wear Bluetooth headphones all day, every day. Why? To put out sound, to keep it out. But But what that does is that creates something in us where silence then becomes inconvenient, and awkward. When it comes to the worship of God, so much of what is called worship is just constant noise. Any downtime, any quietness, people begin to wonder, something's gone wrong. Something's not working. Somebody's forgotten what they're supposed to be doing. Somebody's misread the, the bulletin. When we were, years ago, when we were planting the first church and this was ingrained in our thinking, what you have to have is smooth transitions from the the, the music that's playing before the service into the announcements, fade in the music into the first song, fade out the music into the prayer or whatever, fade it into the sermon. Before the sermon, don't let any quiet time be, be between the end of the sermon and the the next song that they got to overlap. So as the sermon's finishing, fade in the music and transition back out and then fade it out at the end. Smooth transitions. Why? Well, we cannot have silence. It was basically just make sure there's always noise, always Something happened. And I've even heard Christians say, well, silence just makes me feel awkward. You know, I, just, I feel like I need to say something in a conversation. People are sitting around and I just feel like I should say something. But God says, let all the earth be silent before Him. It's not, it's not a lack of virtue if somebody can just be quiet. That doesn't mean that they're being rude. That doesn't mean that they're not friendly. They're just, it's okay to be quiet. We are going to give an account for every idle word that is spoken. It's okay to be quiet, especially in the presence of God. And then Ecclesiastes 5 1 and 2. Ecclesiastes is after Proverbs. Five, 1 and 2 again dealing with worship as a response to God's holiness how should we worship how should we go into the presence of God guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil do not be hasty in a word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. One of the rules that we have at our house, you do not walk into a room talking. You do not cross a, a threshold talking. Why? Well, because you might interrupt what's happening in that room there might be other people already talking and you just walk in and interrupt and some people might say well that just that's, that's that's too severe they're just they're just children they don't know they don't understand well it's okay for us to generate a a worldview in which there are times and places where you should not be speaking that's that's acceptable that should be acceptable especially as we learned about entering into the presence of God. It is okay, and it is rather uh, encouraged here, that when you enter into the presence of God, go quietly. Draw near to listen. Do not be hasty in a word. Do not be impulsive in your thoughts. Don't be quick to bring up a matter in the presence of God like you think. Why? Because God is holy. God is not like us whole silence on our part makes the most sense in His presence. That which seems easy and most natural to us is not what He requires. We, we live in a society where you, do, you, you walk into any business and there are very often people paid and their job is to meet you in your, as you grace the door with, hey, how are you doing? How can we help you today? Just a boom so that there's an immediate encounter. A, a conversation, just get the ball rolling god 's not like us that 's the way we think. Well, I got to walk in talking. no god 's not like us. He 's holy. It might seem unnatural. It might seem awkward to us because of the way that we we often think, but it 's not before God. And if we knew more of His holiness and more of our sinfulness, we would spend more time in silence. Now here's an important note. These texts do not intend to discourage prayer or worship. Nor does God intend that we be so afraid of speaking something incorrect that it paralyzes us so that we cannot pray or worship. I think that's important. When I when I hear and read books on prayer, when I hear sermons on prayer, when I read and and think of these matters. I'm the type of person that wants to say, "Who who who is sufficient for these things? If this is what is required, I I just want to give up. You when when you know you've a congregation of people who listen to other men who teach on prayer, and then you're the one who's got to get up and pray in front of people. And these the other men they stand up and pray, and you you think. I don't want anybody to hear me pray after we've heard and seen these things and knowing the things that we've been taught. We don't want to go to that extreme where we say you're actually discouraged to pray or paralyzed so that we cannot pray. He says both texts simply communicate the need for a biblical reverence or fear when approaching God. We should draw confidence from the fact that God is our Father and yet we must keep in mind that our Father is is God. When we pray or worship, we're coming before the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever. If my kids walk into my study and there's nobody talking, they can walk right up to me and tap my shoulder. If the door is unlocked and open, they just walk right in. I'm their father. There, there is a, a way to balance these things. The last one is the holiness of God leads to gl- worship, gladness and thanksgiving. Let me just read these passages. The first one is Psalm 30, verse four. "Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name." Psalm 97:12, "Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to His holy name. The holiness of God should make us happy people, joyful people. Delightful people, glad people. Gladness and joy are not the same as silly, childish revelry. They're not the same thing. You can be glad and joyful. You don't have to be somber and austere and, and you know, just exude an invisible force field around you that nobody enjoys your presence. You can be glad and joyful, and we should be, Psalm 99, verses 3, 5, and 9. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. We, our response to the holiness of God is worship and gladness and thanksgiving. Isaiah 12, 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God's people should cry out in joy that this holy God would come and dwell in our midst. Now this doesn't mean that we are led by emotions. Our emotions, our affections, whatever word you want to use, I'm not interested in trying to draw that distinction. They are to be informed and moved by revelation. So, so we're, we're not on this side, no emotion, no affection. And we're not on this side where we're led by emotions and, the, the, and spirituality is tethered with emotions as if they were one and the same. But the Bible does not know of a cold, lifeless, unaffected, affected, no affections Christian. That, that's not in the Scriptures. Cry aloud and shout for Joy. Now Some of us have come from backgrounds where you, this this is too much, too much shouting and carrying on, and so we go to the other extreme. We say, "Well, that's, there's there's just we read a text like Isaiah twelve six, and we don't have a category in our minds to make sense of it." Um, my suggestion would be, from time to time, in your car when you're driving, shout for joy. It feels good. All right. I'll make this the last one. Revelation 15, 3 and 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The question is what are the reasons given as to why all men should worship God? His works are great and marvelous, His ways are righteous and true. He alone is holy, and His righteous acts have been revealed. Here's the application How can this be applied to our own lives? Let me ask this question. When you read this, His works are great and marvelous, His ways are righteous and true. He alone is holy. His righteous acts have been revealed. That's what it says. Here's the application. Ask yourself in your own heart. Can you say that you are personally aware of those things? Not, did you hear me read the verse? But can you say, I know that. I have seen that. I have seen His works are great and marvelous. I, when you say His ways are righteous and true, in my heart I say, yes they are. Do you know that? Do you know it? When I say God alone is holy, do you say, I, I know that is true. I, I have seen that. Are you personally aware of these things? Every one of us should be combing the books of Scripture and nature, or general revelation, to see God's great and marvelous works, to see His righteous and true ways, so that we can say, we truly see that He alone is holy. Affirming that He is holy. Hearing it said and saying, yes, I see that that is true from from the ink on the page in my Bible. I see that that is true. That doesn't save anyone. It's having the, the real experiential knowledge of God in these things. That is salvation and then i wrote here oh how we ought to wish that this doctrine would sink in and melt our cold hearts when i think when i read about the holiness of god when i prepare this it 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 rips me to shreds that i can read one of these texts consider one of these truths and i don't fall on the floor my immediate response is not "I'm ruined." I read it. I say, "Here it is." I, I add add comments. I wish it wasn't like that. That that shouldn't be. I think we. I I think it's all of our experience that we would say we we don't respond in ourselves like we should. There should be an increase over time in these. In, this, in the application of this, as we grow and understand God's holiness. Over time, there will be more and more of a response in us. I'll conclude with Ecclesiastes twelve, thirteen, and 14. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. What's our response to God's holiness? Fear God and keep His commandments. Let's pray.